Thanks for joining us for the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast, a podcast to enrich your soul, where we have conversations with inspiring people about all things property, business, and life. And now, the host of Small Talk Big Ideas, Ian Ugarte. Hey there, welcome to Small Talk Big Ideas, and today's podcast is with Mike Mortlock, a quantity surveyor. They say that they're pretty dry people, but he's actually quite funny. Tells us his story from when he was young all the way through to where he is right now as a quantity surveyor, and gives a great explanation of what it really is, including representing Australia. Enjoy today's podcast on Small Talk Big Ideas. You can follow us on all the social media channels. Enjoy it today. It's a great podcast. Hey, Mike. How are you going? Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm fighting fit, building cabinets for my house. It's oh, wow. 95% complete, but it's a builder's house, so it may never be complete, you know. <laughs> I actually, yeah, I'm a plumber too, so I actually had someone do the plumbing. Um, so it might, the plumbing might be done. Um, who are you, Mike? Gee, that's a very sort of esoteric question. <laughs> um, I guess it depends. I'm a sort of a humanoid sort of fella. Uh, I'm a quantity surveyor. It's that, you know, it's the question people ask at barbecues, isn't it? You know, what do you do? But a much better question for a conversation would be, what are you passionate about? Because we don't always do what we're passionate about. It'd be <laughs> weird to say that I'm passionate about quantity surveying. Um, unfor unfortunately, it also would be the truth. Um, but yes, I'm a quantity surveyor. I'm the managing director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. And outside of that, I guess I'm a family man. I'm a, uh, an ex-amateur triathlete and finger picker. Um, yeah, that's about it. That's about What's me. What's a finger picker? Well, that's guitar. It's a sort of oh, style okay. of guitar, finger picking, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Um, so you said triathlete um, in the past. So yeah. full uh, Olympic or full... Uh, my my best results were at the Olympic distance, so I right. represented Australia as an amateur at the Olympic distance uh, in 2013. That was um, the year after the Olympics, um, so I get to race in London and swim in the Serpentine, which I'd only recommend to swans, if I'm honest. <laughs> so um, it's interesting that you bring that up because I like to know almost nothing about um, whoever I'm talking about because it leads us in different <laughs> directions. Um, so what happened after that? You represented Australia after the Olympics, um, but mm. did you get an injury or did you just have enough or...? Uh, I, I think like at that at that t time it was quite a level of commitment to make the national team and it was a sacrifice to the um, to the wife to <laughs> the business in some respects and I think it's just um, I realized that um, at that age it would have been sort of I guess uh, early 30s I wasn't really going to get any faster I wasn't going to turn pro um, and then I ended up having a family and um, right. you know putting more time into the business. So I, I probably pick a race every couple of years, get in ripping shape and then sort of um, get obese and, and slow and then repeat the cycle. Well, I used to, I run, mar I run marathons. And so I, I used to say that I, that I only ran so I could eat. That was it, you know, cause it didn't matter <laughs> what I ate, as long as I was training for a marathon, I could drop the weight. Um, but then that'll, that, that eventually catches up with you. Um, swim, bike or run? 
Uh, it's always been bike for me. That's always been the strength. And swimming was the weakness. And then I worked on that and running became the weakness. It's now right. back to swimming, I think. But right. yeah, I've, I'm sort of... I don't have a typical triathlete um, build, certainly not now. I've let myself go a bit. But even when I'm quite thin, I'm a little bit too heavy. I've got big quads. So the only benefit is really on the bike, just yeah, grounding out uh, the big power. Great. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about um, where you grew up. What, you know, where were you born and how did you grow up and kids and, sorry, um, schools and, you know, yeah, how did okay. you get to um, the first working job? So I was born in uh, in Penrith and left there when I was two, um, not by myself, obviously, and went to a little <laughs> town called Yerong Creek, which nobody has ever really heard of. It's half an hour drive from uh, Wagga Wagga, and it's about 15 minutes drive from Henty. And a lot of people have heard of the Henty Field Days. They used to yes. have a good little jingle. I've been to the Henty Field Day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, when one of my wastewater companies, we used to go out there and sell our wastewater systems. So I've been to there the Henty go. Field Day and I stayed in the Henty Pub. That was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I, I was, uh, I was probably first change for the under eleven Henty cricket team. Right. Uh, right arm leg spin. Yeah. Batted normally eleventh, top score fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> so you would understand and know a place called Tolland then. No, in Wagga, so it's one Holland. of the outer suburbs of Wagga. That's not yeah, the okay. um, not the safest of suburbs in the past, um, but it's getting through gentrification. So we bought something yeah, in there. Okay. We're, we're doing we're doing four boarding house townhouses in there at the moment. Um, so yeah. you grew up there uh, near Henty and went to school locally, obviously. Yeah. So I um, I finished at the end of year five, and I was elected captain of the Yeron Creek Public School for year six, but we moved. So I like to say I never served a day in office um, and then and then moved. Sorry, to the can Mondu I just ask how many students are at, were in your year? There was, well, a year is a harder question. There was about 30 students between kindergarten and year six. So that was the whole school, 30 students. Sorry, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to be disparaging or anything, but, you know, what, were there other were there other runners in the school captaincy um, that you pushed out of the way, or did you get it by default? Wade Murphy was a red hot competitor. He ran a great <laughs> campaign, um, but, but but obviously just uh, just didn't have what it uh, what it took to represent such a, a a prime institution. Well, he ended up the Paul Keating, obviously, after you left the area. Um, he took over. I think right. so. Um, he must have. So you left there, and um, what did you do from there? Uh, moved to uh, moved to Griffith in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, a little place called Bilbul, where um, there was a big De Bortleys there. I think that might have been the original De Bortleys winery, mm -hmm. but unfortunately left Griffith um, around about year nine, so pre-drinking age. I would have it would have been great there, the <laughs> cellar door and everything. But all I really remember is the settling ponds, which used to cast this terrible stench no. over the 50 <laughs> acres that we had so um, what, what was the reason for the all the moves uh so the first move i think was my parents <laughs> wanting to leave sydney thinking that um it would just be a better place to grow up uh, or to raise children i suppose because we had 10 acres which as a you know as a 
a primary school kid was huge, right? It's not a lot of farm for a farmer. It's a, it can only ever be a hobby farm. It was never, it was never income producing really. Um, and that was kind of the idea. And then my old man, he worked uh, for a, a metal company uh, and he was, uh, he got a job in, in Griffith. So we moved to Griffith and then I had a lot of health issues um, as a young adult. Um, I had chronic fatigue syndrome and some environmental sensitivity. So the crop dust is sort of flying over at every sort of six minute intervals wasn't necessarily a great thing. So on medical advice, we decided to move um, closer to where one of my uncles was living. He, he lives in um, Lake Munmora. And we went to on holidays to a little place called Belmont in Lake Macquarie, which now if you tell anyone from Newcastle that, you know, you once had a holiday at Belmont, they would laugh at you yeah, because yeah. it's just sort of down the road and it's, yeah. it's not, it's not yet really super gentrified Belmont. Um, but to us, it was kind of paradise. We went mm. fishing, we caught fish that weren't carp, right? So you could eat them. Yep. Um, yep. And it was just, um, just having the lake and the ocean. It was just absolutely beautiful. So we moved to a place called Caves Beach in about 97. Uh, and I've been in the Lake Macquarie, Newcastle area ever since. Right. And so obviously, um, so firstly, how did, what, what happened with the CFS? Did you do any particular treatment to, to get over that or? Yeah. Um, when I, when I sort of start presentations, so talking to investors and that sort of thing, I, I say, you know, when I grow up, uh, when, when I was in kindergarten, I said, when I grow up, I want to be a quantity surveyor. And some people think I'm serious and they leave. Others laugh because <laughs> no one thinks about that, right? So I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, and unfortunately, at that time, um, I was on sort of a, a an experimental course of full-time antibiotics. Like they say, you shouldn't take much of that because... Um, your body will build up an immunity. One day you'll really need it and you'll die of something trivial like a cold. Mm -hmm. I had it for, I had it for over two years full time. So I'm just, I'm worried one day I'll really need it. It's not going to work for me. So that, that precluded me from, uh, from being a fighter pilot. Um, and that was probably the main treatment, but it, it like, it's not a factor really in my life, uh, anymore. I think I have to be a little bit careful. Um, CFS is like a, it's like a huge diagnosis for a number of different things. So technically, we sort of found out that I have an immunoglobulin A deficiency, mm -hmm. it's turning into a medical program, yes. um, which is very annoying because it's only something that a white person can get. So I've got some sort of like racist genetic problem. <laughs> like if you're African American, you cannot have an IgA. <laughs> deficiency for some reason i don't know why well you can't be um, woke then um so <laughs> any siblings yeah i have a sister right and she's older younger she's younger yeah, yeah. she's about yeah two years younger right okay so you get um to the local area that you currently live in and mm -hmm. how did you get into quantity surveying was that the first job you did no. Um, the first job I ever did was a, was a busker in Griffith. So I went to the local council with my mum and got a little busking certificate. And when you're, I don't know how old I was, or maybe I was like 12 or something. Um, and I had that sort of like, I was just at the arse end of that cute factor, which yeah. is a real money spinner. I can remember creating a little spreadsheet and I figured out that on an hourly rate, I was getting paid more than the old man. In hindsight, I probably should have kept that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I just thought that was really exciting. How much do you get paid, Dad? I yeah. do all the sums. That's probably that's probably a red flag there somewhere. I always um, like, but no, I always my... like hourly. I always like hourly rates. So I've got a mate who's an artist, and um, when he's doing um, a what do you call it? What do you call those things where you? Um, uh-huh. No, you know when they show one artist in a gallery. Exhibition? An exhibition. So he has these exhibitions, right? So simple, that word. He uh, has these exhibitions, and, and I go to him, so how many paintings you've done? He says, 20. I said, how long did the first one take? And he says, you know, it took me about 12 hours to do that one. I said, how much is that worth? And he says, about 1,500 bucks. And I said, how long did it take you to do the last one? He goes, oh, you get quicker. And I said, how much is that one worth? He goes, oh, probably two grand. And I go, oh, man, that's hell of an hourly rate. He goes, it's it's about the art. It's not about the money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, sure. They don't, like looking, they don't like you looking at it like that. You're cheapening their art form. Yes. All right, so you bust. You were good at it? Mm. Uh, I was good enough and I was young enough that it was kind of like, oh, shit, look at that guy. If I did it today, I wouldn't get a cent. Yeah, right. um, the same material, I, <laughs> I'd get nothing. Um, right. So I think after that, my first proper job was a shelf stacker at Coles. Um, and I can remember, doing a, uh, can remember doing a stock take and a lady sort of said, when you're writing down the number of items on the tickets, make sure that they're eligible. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, I don't want to be... I don't want to make sure that I'm not doing this job when I when I'm your age. It makes me sound like a bit of an asshole, but she 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 meant legible. But it just kind of it was like a light bulb moment for me there. <laughs> my dad my dad had an apprentice once. Um, first day, he said to his apprentice, "Can you go make me a coffee?" And the apprentice came back and gave him the coffee. And my dad drank it. He goes, "That is horrible." He says, "You're never making another one for me again." And he said, "Good." <laughs> so, same vein Nailed as what it. you did. <laughs> After Coles? Yeah, so um, I had to do, because of some health issues, I had to do year 11 and 12 over the course of three years. So I did like a half-time load at school. And then most of my schoolmates graduated then in the year 2000, it would have been. And then year I did year 11 and 12 for three subjects in one year. And, and there was sort of like a crossover where I'd finished some and it was half load. And my mother sort of said, you're going to have to do something with that extra time. And here I was kind of thinking it's a, you know, fighter pilot or bust. I had no real kind of inclination to do anything else. Um, I'd always been interested in property, so I decided to study real estate. And so I carried that over when I finished the HSC rather than going to uni, um, finished that diploma of real estate. That was the good old days where it took you like a year full time to get a real estate license instead mm -hmm. of say a weekend. Yep. Um, I think the uh, REA or REIA are still working on that. Yep. Um, and so I finished on a Friday and I got a job as a real estate agent on a Monday. And I realized that if you are sort of like a, a nerdy introvert, real estate is not the career for you pretty quick. So my illustrious real estate career ended after about 10 months in complete and utter failure. Right. Um, 
so then I, I studied valuation because I realized I liked the property, but I was much more interested in the analysis and the economics. And I w started working for a quantity surveying firm and they convinced me to change over my, um, my credits and do a Bachelor of Construction Management. I ended up getting no credits and shelving the um, valuation stuff. I was very close to finishing an advanced diploma. That's a bit of a regret. Anyway, I did that and um, I realized that I quite enjoyed it because it was in the property space. But, but you know, I was more of a, an introverted person and people don't believe me when they say that now because as a business owner, you've got to learn to sell yourself and people mm -hmm. want to transact with people and I've got to try and be witty and charming. I'm still working on it, obviously. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I, was, I was a pretty sort of shy person. I, I, I like doing the work and just kind of being left alone. You know, um, it's interesting that people um, pitched you and put you into pigeonholes. Like for me, I'm a public speaker and I could stand, I could stand in front of 10,000 people and not have a single nerve about talking to people. But get yep. me at a party where there's 10 people and I just want to hide in the corner. I got, yeah. you know, because when you're speaking to people, you're speaking at them. When you're speaking with people, it's a very different story. And so yeah. I'm a slight introverting way too. Okay, so you're working for the quantity surveyors. Um, yep. You forge a path there. When do you start to decide to do your own business? How does that all come about? Yeah, so um, so I worked sort of my way up there and, and became one of the co-managers of the, of the tax depreciation side of it. I had a look at the traditional estimating and I wasn't necessarily super interested in the in you know construction technology or the nuts and bolts of construction i was more i was more an economic style analysis valuation style mindset um business partner now was managing their estimating team um this company shut that down and he was kind of thinking you know what do i do next um i'd got to the point where the people that started the business had made enough money that they kind of were never there and the people that were sort of um ahead of me were had a vested interest in making sure that i stayed sort of where i was and i realized that I wasn't really learning anything. I mean, I signed up to do a master's of property just because I was bored. Mm. Um, and, and I don't think I'm a, I'm a business owner. I think um, if I'd have been paid a little bit more money or if I was a bit happier in that role, I'd probably still be working there. But I'm glad that I had that impetus to get um, to get out of that, you know, because some certain people are just kind of career employees. And I think I was very close to doing that now. I could never go back to yeah. working for somebody. You know, it's a yeah. it's a completely different mindset. Was Betty Davis say? Betty Davis said, um, "You don't know what you got that's gone, but more importantly, you don't know what you didn't have until you've got it." And that yeah. sort of working for yourself is a bit like that. Um, yeah. Okay, so with the business, obviously, obviously successful, and you wouldn't turn that back in in a thousand years because you obviously like what you do. Um, have you bought property? Have I bought property? Yes. Yeah. So you have your own home? Yes. Yeah. Investment properties? Yes. Young when you bought them? Um, I would have been uh, in my, just trying to think, probably mid, mid to late 20s, like maybe about 26, 27 when I burst, bought my first property. Yeah, that's pretty early. It's like, it sort of seems like it is, but then, you know, like if you look at social media, there's this huge kind of 
uh, this huge kind of genre of people like, you know, I bought my first property when I was 17 and then I wanted to get 30 by 30 and now I'm at 38. Like I'm far less impressive than those people. But, you know, there's a lot of ego metrics around property. And I would say like, mm. I, I, I have some, I have a modest portfolio. I have modest success. Um, but, but yeah, like to me, that was, that was a big challenge. And I can remember being quite proud of it at the time. And I probably didn't become a property investor until I was maybe 30 or, or 31, yeah. something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you see, you see these people because of social media, no longer can you be, and I, I hate the word guru, the property guru, you, you, you know, there's no longer the property guru, the the person that's on social media is good at marketing. They're not good yes. at actually being the guru. They're not good at actually mm. really knowing. They've bought properties at the right time, you know, and there's a th it's like Bitcoin experts. They all come out of the woodwork when Bitcoin goes up, but they go very quiet when it goes down. Um, and, yeah. you know, it really, it, it's one of my bugbears that there's people that can get on a stage or get onto social media and start bringing in clients based on one, if none, deals um, and just say whatever they want. I mean, there's quite a few people out there that have been shown up that they don't know what they're doing. And it and it's almost, for me, it's it's an unregulated industry that should be should be one of the should be the first industry that's regulated because I see it all yeah. the time and it annoys the bejesus out of me. And I've been I invested yeah. my first property when I was uh, eighteen, but that was with assistance from my parents. You know, I'm not going to take that away from me. But I was I was driven to do stuff. Um, mm. But ultimately, when you say to me a modest portfolio, I'm not going to ask how many there is. I, I don't like that question when people ask me that question um, because I've got a substantial portfolio, but they all want to know how many properties have you got and all that. It's more about if it's doing what it needs to do and depending on whether you want to get out of work today or whether you're happy to keep on working, most people that say that I have a modest portfolio have probably got a pretty decent portfolio. Um, but you're basing it off, you know, there's, there's one, I'm oh, sorry, I'm, I'm ranting now. There's one particular <laughs> guy, guy that gets on there on social media and I, he always hits my feet and I try and cancel every time. Hi, this is such and such. And I'm Australia's one of Australia's most successful property investors with 16 properties. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? 16 properties, that's success. And uh, one of the most successful, geez, you need to get out a bit more. Um, Okay, what um, you've got kids now? Yes, young, old. They're uh, young. I mean, I'm probably an old dad. I've got a five-year-old and a sixteen-month-old. Right. And um, what do you see? Like, I look at my kids, and sometimes I'm I picked pretty early what I thought they would do, um, and I, yeah. I got it right um, for two of them. Um, they do nothing. Can you pick what? <laughs> can you pick what um, your one of yours would be doing at least the oldest one? Uh, the oldest one is um, he's very very uh, particular. He's quite clever, and he's just he's a master negotiator. So I see him as as being some sort of like diplomat. To be honest, like the way that he. Um, he negotiates and he manipulates his mother and I like you've got to sort of you've got to give him a pat on the back it's actually terrifying like he'll say things like 
thank you for letting me do this. And you're like, oh, whatever, because you, you know, you're busy or whatever. And you're like, wait a minute, what did you just say? <laughs> um, and he's all, and he's already locked in that you've said that he could watch his favorite TV show at four o'clock or something. And you're just like, oh gosh, I've got to be more careful because he's out to get me. He knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. Good on him. Good on him. What? Um... Let's talk about quantity surveying. I don't, have you ever seen Guido Hatzis talk, talk, ring the quantity surveyor? Um, no, I haven't. <laughs> you got to, you got to listen to that one. You know, and, and the guy hates him. <laughs> he keeps on hanging up on him. Um, right. Tell us about quantity surveying. What what is it? There's you know I know with depreciation that property investors yeah. miss out on a lot. With with QS in general, give us a. Mm. A breakdown. Give us a four-minute breakdown of what quantity surveying is and the different arms yep. of what it does, um, and then the mistakes that people make when it comes to to quantity surveyors. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bloody bloody big umbrella of a of an area of expertise. So I guess um, we're the best people to say how much something would cost to build. So any any reason why you would want to know how how much something costs to build is where a quantity surveyor adds value. So if you are a bank lending money to a developer, the bank wants to know how much it's going to cost to build because they're funding something that has a set value and and that value changes over time as the construction progresses and we can sort of certify that. Um, if you're wanting to insure a property, so let's say your property burnt down and you want to reinstate it, you want that value to be accurate. And we're seeing a huge problem with underinsurance. So that's something that we've been actively tackling um, as a business in the last little while. And then there's all sorts of things that fall under quantity surveying, like project management and contracts admin for construction projects. My area of expertise is, is really quite purely the tax appreciation side of things. So I've done thousands and thousands of residential reports, all sorts of commercial things, you know, wineries, pubs, restaurants, medical facilities, dental fit outs, trout farms, just all sorts of crazy sort of stuff. So, so I think the biggest mistake on the traditional estimating side is, is not understanding the value of a quantity surveyor. Like if you watch that, um, that show with uh, Kevin, what's his name? It's the um, Kevin McCall. Grand Designs. Yeah, Grand Designs. Yeah. Yeah. Grand Designs. They always have a quantity surveyor on all of their projects doing the cost management stuff. We don't seem to see the same value in quantity surveying uh, in Australia. And the amount of times where we kind of, we might be engaged to do expert witness for a project over a 40 grand retaining wall, and we <laughs> see the legal fees getting to 200 grand. And you just kind of think, if someone had seen the value in paying us, say maybe eighteen hundred bucks at the beginning, this none of this would have happened. happened. So, so on that side, it's it's the value. On the tax depreciation side of things, like you talked about, people missing deductions. Um, according to our own data, we did a sample of a thousand residential um, property investor transactions, and we found that six point seven percent of people waited so long to engage a quantity surveyor that they missed out on the back claim. So you can back claim two financial years, yep. and the average amount people missed out on was twenty thousand five hundred and thirty-seven. So our PR journalist person, who's obviously got a degree in clickbait, said, <laughs> "You know, if you extrapolate that over the investor population, it's two point eight eight billion dollars worth of missed deductions just floating out there." in the ether so that's at, a, at a cost that's a critical at a cost, mistake at a cost of what to do with the report that would have got them that 20 grand six or seven hundred bucks it's just crazy isn't it yeah you know it's absolutely it's, crazy it's, it's almost like i'm selling something that's a bit too good 
like the value <laughs> proposition is too attractive, so it yep. must be a trick or I'm a spruker or something. Yep. And yep. I, I've gone to the point of saying, I don't care if you use me. Like, I'd love to do the work. I care, firstly, that you use somebody. Secondly, that you use me, right? Because there's value. I just, mm. I don't want you to think I've just, I'm just trying to sell you into something. That's, that's not my style or who I am. But people just sometimes don't realize how valuable it is. There was some changes uh, in the last few years in depreciation. Has that, has, yeah. Did that hurt the industry at all or is it still the same? Uh, it hurt the industry in the sense that there is less residential work that's now viable. So the 9th of May 2017 um, was when the changes came out. So if you purchase a property after that date, it either needs to be brand new to claim the plant and equipment items like carpets, blinds, kitchen appliances, or an established property where you put those new items in. So um, because I'm a, a weird bloke, when that announcement was happening, I already had on my desk an analysis of 5,000 tax depreciation schedules where I was analyzing the data for different reasons. Right. So that night I drove into the office and calculated what this impact would actually have and sent it to the two cleverest, most media connected people that I had in my Rolodex at that time. And that was um, Louis Christopher and Pete Wargent. I, I just realized that they had more reach than me. I had the data. I'll let them sort of go with it. Um, and, and we found that um, about 18% of the last 1,000 residential reports that we did, we would not recommend the owner to proceed. So it shrunk our, our market by a, a portion. When I first drove in, I kind of thought like, uh, this done. might be the end of the business. Yeah, <laughs> it was a stressful time. And, you know, ScoMo and I have been on, you know, rough terms ever since then because he was the treasurer that made that announcement. Good on um, So I'm Good still on. upset. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you're a shark supporter. Um, so <laughs> what is the name of your business? How can people get hold of you um, and um, be able to use your services? Yeah, so the business is MCG Quantity Surveyors. I don't know if it's in shot there. Yeah, there it is. There you there. go. M MCG Quantity Surveyors. Um, and you can find us on, on Facebook, um, LinkedIn, uh, not TikTok. Um, what's the other one? Twitter. <laughs> Instagram. You're on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, we. I used to do a lot on Twitter. I don't do much on Twitter. I'm probably a bit more LinkedIn, Facebook. Maybe that's just showing my age. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you can search MCG Quantities Phase, search my name, Mike Mortlock, and um, yeah, be delighted to, to be of service and value to anyone that's in the property investing game. Awesome. It's been awesome having you on. Thanks for coming along. I always enjoy chatting with you, Ian. Cheers. I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. So there you have it, Mike Mortlock, a quantity surveyor that's very interesting and very funny. You can find him, MCG Surveyors, on all the social media channels. If you want to find out more about our co-living properties getting double-digit returns, go to invida.com.au. That's I-N-V-I-D-A.com.au. And find out how you can get some great returns out of residential property all over Australia. I'm glad and hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And make sure you're listening out for the next one. Thanks for tuning in to the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast. We hope we've succeeded in our goal to inspire and challenge you. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode of Small Talk Big Ideas with Ian Ugarte.